This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. I have another archival episode for you today, uh, and this one features a conversation with Emily Joy Allison, author of the book Church 2, as well as the founder of the Church 2 hashtag. Um, I wanted to release this episode again because of the conversations that continue to come up within spaces that cover evangelicalism and life within evangelical circles and life beyond evangelical circles like like this one. Um, within the last week, we've seen Matt Chandler um, go on indefinite leave due to slipping into someone's DMs on Instagram. Uh, Chandler is the one of the lead pastors of the Village Church, a large uh, Texas Southern Baptist church, and it also, even earlier this month, uh, settled with an abuse victim uh, while also claiming that there was no wrongdoing involved. Um, the issues of uh, abuse within within churches is decades long, uh, and the reason why I'm sharing this again is be, is because of the very fact that so many of the aspects of evangelicalism that we see over and over again are because these institutions refuse to change because they are more interested in protecting their shepherds than protecting their flock. And I don't really have anything pithy to say about it. Um, it's heartbreaking, the number of, of people who suffer in those, in those spaces because of those choices. Um, Emily Joy Allison is a leading voice in this cause, uh, in this particular topic, and I want to share, uh, her words again, and I will have new episodes here shortly. Uh, I have some new interviews scheduled, uh, for next week that will, uh, begin to hit the airwaves, um, just a uh, <laughs> very busy late summer on my part. So enjoy this archival episode, and I will talk to you soon. Hello, and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. This week, it's my pleasure to bring you this interview with Emily Joy Allison, who is returning to the show for the third time to discuss her new book, Church 2, How Purity Culture Upholds Abuse and How to Find Healing. I'm also joined by my friend Amy Congdon as a special co-host. I'll leave the full intro for the interview you'll hear in a moment, but please be sure to check the show notes for links on where to buy Emily's book, which is out on March 9th, 2021. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain and follow the show on Instagram at ExvangelicalPod. You can support the show by leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and by subscribing to my newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post, at postevangelicalpost.com. There's some really exciting things in the works, so please keep an eye on this space. This episode was produced by Jake Lewis. Thank you very much, Jake. All right, let's get into it. My guest today is Emily Joy Allison, who's returning to the show for the third time. Emily is a poet, yoga teacher, and author of the book Church 2, How Purity Culture Upholds Abuse and How to Find Healing. I'm also joined today by Amy Congdon. 
Amy is a clinical mental health counselor in the Kansas City, Missouri metro area, and she comes to this work with a passion for addressing the needs and concerns of those who hold marginalized identities and have experienced trauma as a result of these identities. She's also someone who grew up deeply invested in the evangelical church and purity culture and now provides care to clients who have experienced religious trauma and seek to find healing from those wounds. Emily, welcome to the show. Welcome uh, to me, I guess. Thank you for having me back. I, you said it was like the third time, and I was like, oh, God, I guess it is the third time. Like, it's wild that we've been on these, like, parallel journeys for so many years. Yeah, that's true. And Amy, uh, welcome to the show for the first time. Thanks. Thanks for letting me be here. I'm really excited to talk to both of you, and congratulations, Emily, on the publication of your book. It's very exciting and will be a wonderful addition to this growing body of literature on purity culture. Thank you. I'd love to start by giving some context to Church 2. We actually talked within a month of probably you writing the initial thread that led to the beginning of the Church 2 movement, Um, and that's in the feed for people to find, and I will link it in the show notes as well. But if you could just share a little bit about uh, how you decided to share that story of your abuse publicly and then the initial reaction to it as a place for us to start our conversation. Yeah. um, So my story of abuse was something that um, I held on to from the time it happened um, for about 10 years, um, which is somewhat surprising. I think um, anybody that knows me or has followed me online for any significant period of time knows that like I'm a pretty straightforward person and I will talk about almost anything on the internet, right? Like I will talk about my mental illness. I will talk about my sex life. Like I'll talk about anything. Um, but this was something that I had not talked about and something that I had kind of held close to the chest. And part of that was because, um, I just didn't really know, um, what to make of it. It it was a very like weirdly traumatizing thing that happened to me. But, um, in my mind, I think, uh, you know, survivors more broadly speaking, and women particularly are sort of conditioned to self gaslight and, you know, be like, well, it wasn't that bad. And somebody else had it worse. And so, um, you know, that was kind of like my journey for about 10 years was thinking like, should I talk about this? Well, it wasn't really that bad. Right. Like all these other people that I know about had, had things that I thought were, were way worse, way more traumatizing, you know, now we'll probably talk about it later, but trauma is relative, right? Like it's, it's if your body finds it traumatizing, but um, you know, just as, as a lay person thinking about those things, you know, and in, in the recovery process, I was like, I don't, I don't know if I have anything to be complaining about basically. And so, um, I just sort of held on to this story and it wasn't, you know, I mean, I talked to therapists about it. I would talk to like my close friends. It wasn't like a deep, you know, dark secret or anything. Like I told people about it, but I had not, I, I didn't talk about it out loud with the same ease that I talk about a lot of other things publicly. And so, um, so I had just kind of held on to this. Um, and I had written an essay and like submitted it for an anthology, but like it got rejected. So then I was like, I don't really know what to do. So I just, you know, it was sort of just hanging around. And, um, and then the Me Too movement started going viral. And of course, now we know that, um, you know, Toronto Burke has been working and organizing under the banner of Me Too for well over a decade at this point. But November of 2017 was when that Me Too movement was starting to go viral on social media. Um, and mm-hmm. people who were were not necessarily familiar with Toronto's, Toronto Burke's work were, were also picking it up and, and running with it. Um, and then it sort of just became this whole, you know, it's, it's a little cliche at this point, but this big cultural moment that we are having right now. Um, mm-hmm. So the Me Too movement started. 
And I was like, oh, like I have this weird, unique, like traumatizing story also, but I also knew, um, you know, a lot of times the ways that abuse is perpetuated and justified in religious spaces is a little bit different than how it's it's perpetuated and justified in in non-religious spaces. So I, I mean, I say this, you know, all the time, this is like my line, but like, you don't see Harvey Weinstein justifying his actions with like a chapter and a verse from the Bible. Um, but you do see pastors doing that. And so there's like some specific layers to this conversation that I think deserve to be dealt with and added, which is why I think it's, it's good to have, um, you know, a separate but adjacent conversation to me too about it. Um, mm-hmm. just cause some of the factors are so unique, but right. But yeah. So there was one week where one guy got accused and then another guy got accused and then there was like a third guy. And I was just like, I was, I got like, um, I reached a breaking point, <laughs> Uh, that week. And I was like, I know that I have this thing that I want to say about this, but like, I don't know if anybody's going to pay attention, but I feel like I need to say it because like these guys just keep getting away with it. So then I was like, let me out my abuser on Twitter. (laughs) And that's what that I like texted my group chat that night. I was like, should I out my abuser on Twitter? Like, is that what I should do with my evening? Um, And, you know, very supportive, supportive friends. So (laughs) So I made that thread um, and really, you know, that evening uh, people were responding to it, like friends, people that I, mutuals, people that I had followed on Twitter, you know, for years, there, there was conversation happening and stuff, mm-hmm. but I did not nearly expect, you know, the aftermath of it. Like I was like, oh, we'll have a good conversation about this, you know? Um, but I mean, it was viral by the next morning and has continued to be every single day since. I mean, there are every day there's new tweets, new allegations, new, and even if it's old allegations, people just using it to share new thoughts. And like it, every single day, there are people using that hashtag to talk about their feelings about what has happened to them. And, um, yeah, I, it's a weird thing to say about something that is so, um, you know, sad and traumatizing, but I feel very lucky to be a part of that. Um, and, and to have something that was so, you know, harmful and traumatizing to me almost be like compacted into a little diamond, you know, and like turned into something that is liberating, um, not just for me, but for other people, for strangers, people I don't even know. Um, yeah, it's kind of incredible. I'm sure that's, that's definitely sort of wild to see because when you do a hashtag, it takes on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure does. It's not something that you can uh, necessarily control, but it is something that is this weird sort of artifact that allows people to have these shared conversations or are connected by this really small thing. Well, you know, I mean, hashtag evangelical. Yeah. Yep. You know. I mean, uh, I'm sure that there, there are folks that have discovered it that don't know your story, but you put this out into the world and it became something mm-hmm. larger, which is pretty wild. Um, what was it like taking all of those experiences, which are very online, and then developing a book around it? Because I think that that is, that's a big transition. So just in the process of, of, of writing this book, how did you take all of those sort of experiences that you had and then, you know, format it into a book length type of treatise? Yeah. Um, yeah, it is a big difference because you're going from 140 characters to 68,000 words. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so kind of a different medium. Um, yeah. To be honest with you, all of the credit for the structure of the book goes to my absolutely brilliant fiance, Caitlin Stout, um, who many people follow on Twitter also. She's great. Um, but early in the book writing process, I, I had had um, 
sort of the proposal for the book drafted up for a while, but early in the book writing process, like when, when I was starting to get that proposal in front of actual editors, mm-hmm. um, I sat down with Caitlin and she, we, we were talking about like, how should I structure this? Like, what do you think? And, um, the way that I ended up structuring it is very, um, sociological in nature. Um, and she has a, she has a degree in sociology. And so there's no surprise. This is so that all of the, the way the chapters are is, you know, all Caitlin because she's brilliant, but, um, but I structured the book um, by theology, by theological uh, category, right? So I was thinking to myself, okay, what what constitutes purity culture, right? If I was going to line up mm. the mm-hmm. theologies like a column, like columns holding up, you know, one maybe like I'm thinking in my mind of like one of those ancient Greek temples, right? Like the, the columns holding up the building. Um, what are those columns? What are those pillars? Mm. Um, yeah. And so those are things like modesty. Those are things like abstinence only. Those are things um, like complementarianism. Those are things like um, institutionalized homophobia or what some call non-affirming theology, quote unquote. Right. So, so I took all of the pieces that I that I see to be, you know, constitutive of the problem of church too, um, and used each chapter then to kind of explore um, why. And that's the thing. I mean. Yo, I feel like a broken record so much of the time, but that is the thing that I have been hammering on since the beginning of church too. It's not just bad men. It's not just abuse. It's the theology. It's the ideology. It's like the purity culture behind all of this. Um, right. And, and I, I, most of the time, I, I really feel like a lot of people don't want to hear that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people don't want to have to, um, you know, uh, adjust or change their, their theology, particularly their sexual theology, um, because we have so much pathology about the body in Western Christianity that we have made it so that our sexual theology is like equivalent to orthodoxy. Um, and so it's very, it's very threatening for people to, to want to do that. I really appreciated the way in which you, and Amy, please chime in if you, if you have any thoughts or, uh, at any point, I really did like that you use that sort of theological structure in order to, dive into this because of the fact that so much of purity culture, it is like an evangelicalism in general and purity culture being part of it, it. They're all overlapping all of these different things. Complementarian theology upholds the ways in which churches handle abuse and all of these different things. Let's start with one of those things, which is the most common sort of terminology that we use when we discuss issues rel- relative to church to, which is purity culture. What's the the working definition that you use within the within the book um, to define the different characteristics of, of purity culture and how they enable abuse and harassment? Yes. Um, okay. So this is the thing I've been working on for a really long time. This is my elevator pitch. Um, it is very wordy still, but there's a lot to fit into it, right? So I would define purity culture. A lot of people define purity culture like, oh, it's just like chewed gum metaphors or like those weird dances where the girls put on white dresses and like go with their dad. It can be those things. It can be. That's That can be part of it. But ultimately, purity culture is the culture created by the theologies that teach that the only acceptable framework for any kind of sexual experience whatsoever is a legal monogamous marriage um, between a cisgender heterosexual man and a cisgender heterosexual woman for life or else, right? Mm -hmm. And so what the or else is, is going to, that your mileage is going to vary there depending on your community, right? Because some communities, some churches are going to tell you or else you will get an STI and get pregnant 
or else God will be mad at you, or else your future spouse will be very disappointed in you, or else you will burn in hell forever, right? There's there's a whole range of, of carrots on sticks, but there's always an or else. There's always like a threat hanging over the head to like ensure compliance. Um, and all those pieces are important, right? You take, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who look at that and they're like, well, um, I think it's okay to have sex before marriage, but um, you just have to be monogamous still, or I think it's okay to be gay. You just have to wait until marriage or like all of these things. Right. And, um, all of that is actually, it's, it's, it's a, it's just a lot of pillars that hold up that house of purity culture, mm-hmm. right? All of that is a part of it. That's not really fun for people to hear, but that, that's, <laughs> that is my definition. Oh, very, very accurate. <laughs> yeah. And it makes me think of the the way in which you talk about the idea of consent and how it's absent within purity culture and in a lot of these other elements of what builds up and holds up purity culture. Why is that lack of consent so essential in order to maintain purity culture within these organizations? I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying this is <laughs> this is what happens. Yeah. No. It's- <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's part of it. Um, I, I think consent is, uh, feared, glossed over, ignored, however you, however you want to say it in purity culture, um, for a few reasons. One of which is that, um, consent is based on the idea, obviously, I mean, this is, (laughs) this is like one oh one, but consent is based on the idea of choice. Um, and in purity culture, you don't have a choice. Right. And you're not supposed to have a choice. I mean, they tell you, oh, you get to freely choose to be abstinent as a as an act of obedience towards God. But like there's no free choice that can be made, you know, with a metaphorical gun to your head. That's not how that works. This that that, that precludes the possibility of good moral reasoning um, if you are mm-hmm. if you're being forced. Right. Um, and so because consent is so based in choice, choice is a very threatening thing for purity culture, right? Um, because consent is consent is not just about the yes, it's also about the no, right? Consent is about the idea that you should be able to say yes to the sexual experiences that you do want to have and no to the sexual experiences that you don't want to have. And teaching people to say yes and no to the experiences they, they do and don't want to have is a very threatening thing. I mean, not just to purity culture, but just to the larger project of like white evangelical Christianity in general. Mm-hmm. Um, it, both both with regards to sex and also in regards to, to other issues. Um, and all these things are so connected, right? Like it's never just about sex. It's never just about the body. Like, and so, so yeah, I think consent is a very threatening idea. And I say this in the book, but I really think, you know, the idea in purity culture to me is not really to get young people to say no, right? It's not really about getting young people to say no, because if you teach young people to say no, right, that is teaching young people to hold a boundary, to hold a personal boundary. Um, and it, when you start holding boundaries, then you start to think you're worth something, right? When you hold, when you start holding boundaries, then you're like, wow, I'm a person. I can say yes and no to what I want. I have value. I have worth. No, that's not what it's about. In purity culture, the idea is to get young people to say nothing. It's not about getting them to say no. It's about getting them to say nothing. And that is, I mean, I'm assuming we're going there, but that's exactly, that's step one for how purity culture upholds abuse. Um, is because it disciples people to mm. say nothing. Right. Yeah. It definitely feels like this thing where we're talking about it all the time. It's something that is 
preached from every aspect of the church as an institution. Um, and yet then if you're not one of the people doing the instruction, you are to remain silent about it, follow along. And so then it flies under the radar. Um, and I think that's one thing that I see a lot in my work with, uh, with people who have had experience with purity culture is they're so surprised as they kind of delve into this of all of these things that pop up that have always been there that they weren't aware of. And I'm curious in your, you know, going into all of the theology and thinking about all the things you've learned and maybe rediscovering some things like, was there anything surprising that you came back across that you were like, oh, wow, this is. In the process of writing the book? Yeah. I don't know. You know, I think it's, it's, it's less for me and, you know, like, um, Caitlin and I both grew up very evangelical. Um, but our, our roommate, uh, is like grew up like cradle liberal Lutheran. Mm. Um, and so like, there'd be sometimes I'll be like talking about this thing that I'm writing for the book or I'm doing my edits and I'm like, remember this. And, um, and our roommate is just like standing in the corner, like mouth, just completely <laughs> agape looking at us. Like, what is what I have never heard of this. Right. Um, which I think is like, yeah, it's, when you've been out of it long enough, I don't know. I mean, the, the topic of like deconstruction is like very popular right now. Um, I mean, I started deconstructing in like 2010. So like I've, I've been out of evangelicalism for a little while now. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes it is like you go back and you, you remember these things that happen and you're like, wow, that really did happen. That was a thing. Like, I don't know, even just the other day I was thinking about it. Cause I watched that, um, new documentary about Britney Spears on Hulu. And I was like, oh, damn, like my junior high youth pastor really did call Britney Spears a tramp from the stage and have us to bring Britney Spears CDs to the, um, to the youth group and trade them in for Christian CDs. Um, mm. like that, that was a real thing that happened. Uh, and it's just, yeah, it's weird. It's sometimes weird to remember all of that. And you're like, I knew it was bad, but like, I'm not, I'm not making it up. It's very weird. Yeah, wasn't I mean, wasn't that the part of that whole narrative that Brittany and Justin supposedly were waiting till marriage and then mm-hmm. then they were like, yeah, no. And then that's when Christian cancel culture came in and and canceled Brittany, <laughs> even though like Justin is the one who has turned out to be like the worst, you know, like I just yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's all misogyny. Yeah. Yeah, but I I definitely remember remember that too being like and they weren't the first and they weren't the last because I'm pretty sure they did the same thing to Miley Cyrus because they put mm-hmm. her on that same pedestal of purity and then she became a person like an adult person <laughs> and didn't fit into that box and they did the same thing. Yeah, it's almost like when you um, put people on pedestals, it doesn't work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You alluded a little bit to how uh, abuse can begin to enter into these spaces because of all of these things. So let's talk about that for a little bit and how the all of these theologies, all of these things that contribute to cultures of silence and local churches, and as well as in entire denominations that hurt and cause abuse. Um, whenever things get sensitive, I get all kerfuffled so (laughs) (laughs) it's okay it's hard to talk about it really is hard to talk about i'm just gonna hand it over to you and and that is a very sort of open prompt yeah let's let's start to segue to that that even more difficult part which is when the trust that is supposed to be in place 
in churches is betrayed yeah. in the in this way. Yeah. So I mean, we can say like purity culture upholds abuse or purity culture leads to abuse in churches, but what do we really mean when we say that, right? Um so there's a few different like it's not like juggling, but there's just like stuff we gotta hold at the same time, right? Okay. On one hand, um, you're never, no one, Christian church, school, Hollywood, Washington, no community anywhere um, is probably ever going to be able to uh, stop like 100% of abusive behavior from happening. Um, And that is because people who have a value system that includes abusing others um, are very tricky and they're usually very charismatic and they make people trust them and they make people like them. Um, And, and so I, I think it's a little overly simplistic to be like, well, you know, so-and-so should have known right now. I mean, people are, people who behave in abusive ways are liars um, and they are very tricky. And so, so there's a sense in which you will never be able to um, prevent a hundred percent of abuse from happening in your And that's just a thing we have to be um, real about and be sad about um, and grieve, but that's the fact, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, there are things that are risk factors for abuse. Um, and there are things that are attractive to abusers. And there are things that, um, I mean, encourage is kind of like a mild word for it. There, there are ways we disciple people, men, there are ways we disciple men into abusive behavior. So, so I think in some ways, purity culture acts like, um, like one of those lamps that you put outside that attracts the mosquitoes and the moths. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what those are called, but um, it's like a little sign outside. I I talk about this in the book about how it's just like a giant blinking vacancy sign outside your church, except for instead of vacancy, it says you can find your next victim here and we probably won't call the police. Right. Um, So in this way, like, for example, having a whole youth group full of like young, impressionable kids who have not been given correct sex ed, who do not know names for their body, who do not know the word consent and know that they should be able to say yes and no to the sexual experiences that they do and don't want to have, who are ashamed of sex. Some of them are probably in the closet, um, don't have adults they can talk to because all the adults will only pair it back to them. Like the, the purity culture lines, right? That is a, that's, I mean, that's, you are fishing in a barrel if you're an abuser, right? In that situation. Um, so there's that, right? I think, I think a lot of the ways that purity culture shows up, um, in churches attracts abusers to that community, right? Um, there's also an internal component. This is what I mean by discipling, right? Like we disciple women to think that these abusive behaviors are like holy love. And this is my husband being like a good complementarian husband. And, and we disciple men into thinking that they should be in charge and they should get sex whenever they want it. And, you know, all these things in, in a way, we're just sort of home growing our own abusers mm. too, right? Because right. we're telling them like these abusive behaviors are actually like good and holy and like bi- biblical, <laughs> quote unquote, whatever that word means, Right. Um, so I think it's both. I think, I think purity culture is attracting outsiders to the church in order to, um, prey on, on people in the church. And I also think purity culture is growing its own abusers, um, you know, in the basement, so to speak. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I, that's nervous laughter. I'm not, (laughs) it's because I'm not sure how to segue (laughs) away from that. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's like, it really sucks. So yeah. That's the thing about about conversations like this, about books like yours, 
and just about this moment in history, people that came from these communities, people that um, are still in these communities, you ju- you have to sit in these sorts of moments and let let that information, you know, sit mm-hmm. with you in your body and and hold it for a little bit, um, because yeah. the reason why we're here, the reason why your work is necessary is because it's been ignored for so long. I am curious uh, about a, a few different audiences for your book that that you hope to speak to and, and what what you hope that they take away. Um, the, the first being uh, survivors of, of this type of abuse. Uh, the second being uh, church leaders or other types of people who may be working uh, with these sorts of issues that they just have to face. And then the third being um, people like Amy who are in positions where they can provide counseling. So let's start with uh, the survivors uh, and um, how we can, even in conversations like this, even uh, as these conversations are driven by books like yours, how, how, do, how can we keep survivors in mind while we discuss and think about these issues? That's a great question. Um, and I think it's a great question because, um, people freaking forget about survivors when talking about sexualized violence. They're, they, they center so many other concerns and so many other people in the conversations outside of the survivors. And I'm like, if you are doing work around sexualized violence that does not center the survivors of that sexualized violence. Like, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know if you're doing work around sexualized violence. Like, I think you're doing work around image management mainly, probably, you know? Right. I've seen, and I'm sure, you know, you've gotten added so many times on Twitter that like you're targeting the church or you're persecuting the church. I'm just not centering the church. Church views not being centered as being persecuted, but I didn't write a book that was going to be the most um, compelling thing to churches. I didn't, I didn't sit down and think, how can I most get my message across to church leaders? Right. That's not what I was going for because I don't think that is actually the most important thing in this conversation. Right. Right. I am that little, um, measuring stick on the roller coaster. You get up there and it's like, you must be this tall to ride. That's my book. I'm just saying you must, this is the standard, right? You must be this tall to ride. That's it. You can't get (laughs) mad at that. If you're not tall enough, you know, like, the metaphor breaks down. But what I'm saying is, <laughs> what I'm saying is that's what I view my role as, right? I didn't center the church because I didn't want to write a, a here's how to be a less problematic church manual because I don't actually, uh, I am not personally invested in the life or death of the church. Um, it's not, it's not probably one of the bigger questions that I spend time thinking about. I am thinking about survivors, right? So I'm like, I'm going to write a book that says what survivors need to be said, regardless of how the church feels about it. Because I think that. Um, and this is, this is kind of getting into the question of like marketing and branding and whatever, but like, I think that, um, who you repel is just as important as who you attract. Um, and I think we spend a lot of time thinking about who we're attracting and not enough time thinking about who we're repelling. Um, and that is another reason why I wrote the book the way that I did, um, is because I want to repel certain Christians. I want to repel certain churches. Um, and I don't, I don't feel bad about that. I'm not, I didn't write the book with an aim to, um, have it be a thing where like your average church could do it for a book club and like feel good about themselves at the end. Um, (laughs) that's, that's not the idea. Now, maybe there are some church, I, you know, I, I think there are some churches that, um, that are willing to do the work, but, um, 
but that's not, that's not the purpose of it. So yeah, I think I'm like, when I wrote this book, I was like, I'm going to do what I would have needed as a, I mean, really that's all when it comes to my audience, it's just me 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Like it's just, it's just, yeah, I write for my, I write for former versions of myself. Um, and I continue to. And so, so I was like, I'm going to do what I would have needed. I'm going to do what the survivors that I currently know would have, would have needed in, in situations like this. Like, um, yeah, people just, they really just forget about survivors. And I'm like, that is, this is the whole point. Amy, do you have any particular questions um, or things that you think would be helpful for different types of providers to have in mind when they're working with survivors of this type of abuse that takes place in religious contexts? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, I think what I discovered along my way of schooling and, and getting into the field and you know, somebody having been grown up in the purity culture, um, with a purity culture background is I would share with classmates or, you know, do presentations. I took a sex therapy class and talked about purity culture. And most people are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so I think my question is really, you know, what would you want therapists, uh, social workers, just people who are working with survivors to know about purity culture, church culture, and how that, that makes the experience unique for a survivor. Yeah. So first of all, I would say that I would want those practitioners to know and to understand that um, purity culture specifically, and also just religion more broadly, um, is not morally neutral inherently, right? Like um, purity culture sort of gets subsumed under like this category of like sincerely held religious beliefs or whatever, you know? So it's like <laughs> mm -hmm. sort of rude to question it, right? Like if someone's like, I'm waiting till marriage, like, well, that's just, it's rude, right? Like um, it's rude to, it's rude to feel weird about that. Um, and so, so because these things end up kind of becoming like sort of sacrosanct, right? Um, people tend to treat them like they are morally neutral. Like it's just, oh, it's just another religious belief. It's just another, it's just another, you know, and it's like actually very deeply harmful. And not only is it harmful to the individual, but I would also want to like in a very real and like, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be like that guy in like the conspiracy meme <laughs> where he's got all the things by like yeah. red string and he's pointing but at it, you know, is. but like in a very real way, like, purity culture is why is is part of the reason why we have Donald Trump like purity culture is the reason why we have this like re, the purity culture is uh the vehicle of the resurgence of like this white supremacist christian right because it is all about like this purity right and purity is like code it's a dog whistle it's a dog whistle for whiteness um and you know i go into this a little bit in in the book as well um you know not nearly a, a good book that i've been reading um is sarah mosliner's uh, virgin nation um about this a little bit but um so i i do this in a very like kind of quick you know half a chapter version um at the beginning of the book but it, it really is it's very deeply tied to like white supremacy and christian nationalism um and very connected to what we have going on politically like on a national scale right now um, you know, people voted, I mean, uh, I would say, <laughs> this is my opinion, uh, that most white Christians voted for Donald Trump because of racism, but the reason they said they voted for Donald Trump is because of abortion. And that 
is a big part of purity culture, yes. right? Like that is abortion is connected to this conversation because with abortion comes like these questions of like, who is able to reproduce? Who, um, you know, like are, are the people that we want to reproduce reproducing? I mean, we're, we're really getting into like eugenics type of conversations, right? This all of this. So yes, like the, the red strings and the paper and the conspiracy or whatever, but like, it's real. All of these things are very connected. Um, and so, so yeah, that's what I would want people to know. It's not morally neutral. It's a very big deal. It's very connected to what's going on politically on a national scale for us currently in this moment. Um, and it may be going away. Um, you know, Gen Z is experiencing purity culture in a different way than I did. Um, so it's a different thing, but it has not, it has not petered out yet. It is still around. Um, you know, I think, uh, millennials are probably uniquely traumatized by it because it was the height of it. It was the heyday when we were kids. Yep. Um, yeah. but it's not gone away yet. It's still around. Um, it's a very, very real threat to, um, not just like national well-being, but also people's, you know, interpersonal healing. So, right. yeah. Absolutely. And what you said about healing, one thing I really enjoyed about the book is it's, you know, it's one thing to just talk about and kind of expose the system that um, is broken and problematic. Um, but then you also, you know, you, you move into the space of, okay, this has happened and now, now what can I do or what can we do? Um, and I'd love for you to talk more about, you know, just the, the healing piece and, and what you've discovered in your own journey and what you would want to others to know. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it sounds a little cliche, but I do think that like the healing journey is different for everyone. Right. Um, I, I can't take my healing journey and then superimpose it onto you, um, and say, this is how your healing journey also needs to go. Um, right. I'm in seminary right now. <laughs> I'm literally getting a master's degree in Christian theology. Um, some people need to never darken the doors of a church again. Some people need to not be a part of any kind of organized religion whatsoever or find a completely different religion or what, you know, there's so many different options. It's just, um, yeah, it's one of those things that you can only describe and never prescribe for people. Mm -hmm. Um, and so all you can really do is share your stories. All you can really do is share your narratives in this. And so in the book, I sort of go into this. I was like, this is how I have found healing. I, um, have gone to therapy. I have reconnected with my body. Um, you know, some of my healing was like, I realized I got connected with my body and my body was like, you need to get a divorce and be with women. Uh, and I was like, well, that sucks. Um, but, but I did it, you know? Um, and so, so it really is this, this, it's very personal. It's very personal. Um, and so there are broad brushstrokes though, right? You can go, okay. Um, you know, therapy, as we know, is a privilege, um, mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Um, and it's not as accessible as it should be. It's not as accessible as I wish it was. Um, but therapy can be a really big part of that for a lot of people. Um, there is also, I mean, you don't have to like, you know, run a marathon or anything, but you do have to get back in your body. Yeah. You do, you do have to like, you gotta, even if you just want to sit in a chair and like do chair yoga, but you have to like, you have to move your body. You have to get back into it. You can do breathing exercises. You can do whatever it is that gives you life and makes you feel good. But like, you have to do something you can't, because there's so much about, um, purity culture specifically and, um, Western Christianity generally that really demonizes the body. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and this goes, I mean, this is why like, it's sort of hard sometimes to have conversations about like the Bible for me, 
because I'm like, we can do all of this work to talk about like why this or that verse in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean like X, Y, Z thing. And it probably doesn't because Greek is complicated, but like at the end of the day, Christianity has never been particularly sex positive. Like it's, <laughs> yeah. Christianity has always had a trouble with the body. And so there's, you have to reconnect with the body. That's not optional. You just have to, um, you know, so there's artistic outlets. There's all kinds of different things that you can do, um, to, to start that journey for yourself, to continue that journey for yourself. Um, so broad, broad brushstrokes, but individual yeah. journey. It feels as relevant as ever. Um, it doesn't feel like none of these concerns are going away. Well, and that's what's wild about it in the pandemic. Like at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought, you know, maybe it'll be a quiet year. Um, but no, it is not a quiet year. And we have had just as many instances of abuse and sexualized violence come out this year as any year before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The ones that are getting attention, I mean, we can date this. This podcast is being recorded on March 5th of 2021. And we're still getting reports about Carl Lentz and other other things that happened at Hillsong. You quote others that have happened in the last few years regarding Hybels. Mm -hmm. It's not limited to evangelical spaces, even though evangelicalism is a particularly a particular hotbed of this. Nonetheless, uh, it is something that is present everywhere and feels as like I said as relevant as ever. How do you envision the future of this this type of work of your own work of the fact that this remains such a powerful vehicle for people to share their stories to connect with other survivors to for people to be able to challenge the teachings that they've been given. Um there's so many elements to purity culture itself and it feels like the response to it may need to be just as complicated. Yeah. Like Gen Z is experiencing it differently, but there are some accounts on Instagram that surface like all these purity culture TikToks that happen now. Mm -hmm. of, like, oh my goodness. Yeah. It's so wild to me. I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, these are just things that I see that people take and there's all this purity culture stuff that's happening there. Um, so given that these things are so purity culture itself is resilient the response to it has to be resilient too. Um, how do you see your role in continuing these types of conversations? Yeah. Um, so I have been dreaming about this lately because like the book was my focus for so long. I was like, I just got to get this book out. Right. Like, and that's when you're writing a book, like that's, that's just what you have to focus on. You're like, all I care about is like getting these words written. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, now that the book is done and like about to be birthed into the world, um, I've been dreaming about that and about what it might look like to take, um, you know, I, I, on the one hand, I'm a very, very, very big believer as, um, both a millennial and also like an early adopter of technology that like, um, online or whatever, like is, is real life. Um, like what happens online is real life. It's not like, here's this like fake life. And then we exit you know, the internet and like, go back to our real lives. That's not real. And it's not even, I mean, it's not even just because like, I met my fiance on Twitter, right? Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that like what we do online has very real implications for real life. So it's not, it's not that I want to continue doing all of the things that church two has, has done so far. Um, because I think some of it is like kind of amazing, you know, like there was a time when you wouldn't get the entire board of a church to resign, um, over a pastor's misconduct. Um, but that time is not now. Now, I mean, you know, the sun is the sun is kind of setting on the time when that was um, 
you know, common practice. And so, um, so I want to continue to do all the things that church two has been doing. Um, I've also been dreaming about what it would look like to, you know, obviously <laughs> we're in the pandemic, but, um, in the after times, <laughs> whenever, <laughs> whenever we can all, you know, be together physically again, um, I've been dreaming about what it would look like to like, what would like a church to protest look like? Like, what would it look like to organize, um, a conference that wasn't centered, uh, that was about this topic, but not centered around like the assumption that the church should continue to exist. Like what, what would it look like to, um, kind of produce these bodies of knowledge in like a physical, tangible way? Um, mm -hmm. and I, you know, of course I want to write more books and stuff too, but, um, but yeah, those are things that I've been thinking about in the, in this moment of like, how do we translate this off? You know, because um, I, you know, I think one thing is like with some of these bigger, more well-known churches, they're very sensitive to bad press. Um, and so church two is particularly effective for like these bigger, more well-known churches, right? Because they see all this bad press on the internet and they're like, oh no. Um, less so for like smaller churches, for less, for, for churches out in the middle of nowhere that no one's heard of. Um, they don't really care if someone's talking negatively about them on Twitter. Um, so I I've also been thinking about, okay, how do we support victims in places where bad press is not a motivator? Um, you know, this sort of, these, so these are, these are questions that I'm beginning to ask myself. Um, yeah. You know, as we kind of, we're all sort of in a holding pattern right now, right? Cause we can't go anywhere. We can't <laughs> be around people. We can't do stuff, but, but as, as the pandemic, um, you know, I don't know if it's ever going to come to a close, but as, as we are able to then be back out in the world again, at some point, you know, hopefully in the next year or so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to think about these questions of what might that look like and, and who can I partner with? Cause a lot of times when you, you hear people say like, why is no one talking about this? Well, it's just people are talking about it. You're not listening. Right. So I'm thinking, I'm trying to think who can I partner with? that's like already doing this work. Like how do we not reinvent the wheel in order to help folks? Um, yeah, those are all like conversations that I'm trying to have in community and also places like right here, which is amazing. So, yeah, I'm excited for whatever comes next. And I'm excited for this book to come out in under a week. Now we're talking again on the fifth, the book is called Church 2, How Purity Culture Upholds Abuse and How to Find Healing. And it comes out on March 9th. Um, the book will be out by the time you listen to this. So please go out to your local bookstore if you have one of those and are able to visit it uh, safely. I've told People have told me they call their local bookstore and ask them to order it, and they do. So if you ask nicely, your local bookstore will probably order it, and that is preferable to lining the pockets of just Jeff Bezos. <laughs> That's right. And you'll also find links to the bookshop.org uh, in the show notes for this episode as well. Emily, thank you so much for joining me and Amy as well. Emily, where can people find you online? Yes. Um, so I am at Emily Joy Poetry on um, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me there. Um, I have a website. It's emilyjoypoetry.com. It's very out of date because I'm launching a book and I'm a full-time grad student and I'm planning a wedding. Um, so I only have time for like so many things. Um, but yeah. I, I, you can read my old stuff there. Um, and there's like a booking form, um, and all that type of stuff. I know we're in the pandemic. Um, but I will still come like virtually to your school, your conference, any, any type of virtual things you might be doing. Um, yeah. Emilyjoypoetry.com. And then just at emilyjoypoetry on the social medias. Amy, thank you for joining as well. Where can people find information about your firm in the Kansas City, Missouri area? 
Um, well, you can Google me, Amy Congdon, and um, I'm, I'm on Psychology Today. Um, I'm on Twitter as well at, at A.E. Congdon. Um, and I believe my information is there too. Um, and yeah, that's probably, that's probably the easiest way. Great. Well, thank you both for joining me today to talk about Emily's book and this topic in general. This is a really great conversation and I can't wait for people to hear it. Thank you.